0: to be today. Romans chapter 4. And I'm going to read through the first 16 verses and then we'll pray and then we'll begin to see if we can pick out some of the beauty of this and, and uh, the, the wonder of God in saving sinners. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. to Abraham and his offspring, that he would be heir of the world, did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it, had been, if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null, and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Lord, we ask now that you would uh, open up our minds and hearts to the truth recorded in this part of your word. Thank you so much for your word. There are so many different ideas about God and how to have a relationship with God in this world. So many different religions and they all have ideas about how that works. How one becomes right with God. But you've recorded it for us. You've given us your word, this sure, unfailing, inerrant book. And it records for us with clarity, how we can have a relationship with you. We're thankful for that. And we pray that we'll rejoice in it as we study this section together today. May your blessing be upon your word as it works in our lives. We ask this in Christ's great name. Amen. So I want you to travel with me in your thinking, if you would, down what I'm going to call the highway of life. Everyone is on this highway, this this journey. Uh, Picture that we're in our vehicles and we're moving in a long caravan. And, And this caravan includes everyone. Everyone's in their vehicle traveling down the Highway of Life. And as we're traveling along, we... We get to a place where we look to the side we see a particular house and the house stands out to us because there's this gigantic sign in the front yard that says the house of salvation whosoever will may enter as we're coming up on the house we we notice that some people just drive by they just drive by it. They, it's like they don't see it or they give it no attention. Others stop and they, they get out of their vehicles and, and they walk up to the door. And once they get to the door, they notice another sign which says, You may enter if you have the right key to unlock the door. You may enter if you have the right key. To unlock the door. And as we are sitting there watching this, we notice that each person goes up to the door, they read the sign, and they pull a key out, and they stick it in. And some of them, it doesn't unlock the door, and they walk away. Others, they, they go up, and they stick their key in, and it unlocks the door, and they, they enter. Some have the right key, but others have the wrong key. Now, I want you to keep that in mind until we get to the end of the sermon. And we'll, we'll, we'll take it up again at that point. In the latter part of uh, chapter 3, Romans 3, 21 through 31, uh, Paul detailed that God justifies sinners by faith in Jesus Christ. It, that passage is so deep, so theological, it, it is almost staggering uh, it, it, as you examine it and you consider it. And it's, it feels somewhat abstract as it talks about words like justification and redemption and propitiation, all these big, important words that uh, for us are you know deeply theological. But it can seem like, hmm, uh, can you put that into practical terms for me? I tried to do that the best I could as we we're going through that passage. But I think that's what Paul is doing in, in chapter 4. He's giving practical example to what he has just stated in the latter part of chapter 3. And we saw that Jesus Christ is a Redeemer and the atoning sacrifice and the propitiation which God provided in order that he could declare sinners righteous in his sight. And they, they are declared righteous when they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. In chapter 4, the apostle goes on then to prove, this is important, from the Old Testament. He goes on to prove from the Old Testament that what he has said concerning justification by faith is true. You know, the Jews' first question to Paul might be something like, what about Abraham? Um, Pastor Greg was reading about Abraham the, you know, uh, the father of the Jews, there in chapter 8, they claim that Abraham was their father. And of course, Jesus goes on to rebuke them greatly because he knew their real father was the devil, the liar, and the, the deceiver. But what, they might ask, what about Abraham, our, our father? Doesn't his life prove that a person is justified, you know, by obedience and by good works? Now, until Paul has dealt with Abraham, he will not be able to get anywhere with the Jews. Remember, he's been dealing with the Jewish straw man since the beginning of chapter 2. If you've been through our study together, that Jewish straw man, he keeps on bringing up and asking questions and answering questions, and he's doing that here again. And if he's to reach the people that he loves so deeply because he is one of them, is a physical descendant of Abraham himself. He's got to address Abraham. And if Paul can establish that as true, that the father of the Jewish nation was justified by faith, well, then he will have made great pains in reaching them. If he can't prove that, then it's going to be a tough sell, so to speak. Now, we have to remember that Paul was a first-class Pharisee, Prior to his coming to know Christ and becoming a follower of Jesus Christ. And he knew the minds of the Jewish people very well. He knows that without a doubt that the response of the, the Jew to what he has set up to this point would be that they would reject his teaching just as they rejected the teaching of Jesus. Uh, why do you not believe? Because there is no place my word in you. And that was true with Paul and his teaching as well. The Jew would oppose the teaching that a person could not earn his salvation by obeying the law. I mean, he knows that without a doubt uh, that they would reject what he has said. In fact, they would say that obeying the law was the only way, the only way to be right with God. So it's central to Paul's position that the way of salvation that he's been outlining, you know, this, this way of salvation by God's grace through faith is no new innovation. It's not new. It's not new in the New Testament. It is based in the Old Testament as well. He's prepared to prove that a proper understanding of the Old Testament supports the position that a person is justified by faith and not not by works. Now, it sounds like we might be saying to ourselves, haven't we heard this before? Well, yeah, we sure have. Since, since the beginning of chapter 2, it keeps getting repeated and repeated and repeated. So why does he keep repeating it? Because it's so important to understand. Because the truth is, most religious people fall into that thinking that we are right with God based on how we behave, keeping the rules, being good, obeying you know, the law, even though most of them couldn't tell you what the law was. They couldn't identify two or three of the Ten Commandments. They might even not be able to identify one of the Ten Commandments. But they believe that that's how you get right with God. So he is prepared to prove that a proper understanding of the Old Testament supports justification by faith, not by works. And he's prepared to show that Abraham, the most revered person by the Jewish people, is a specific example uh, of of justification by faith and not works. He is a concrete example of one who is declared righteous, not because of what he did, but because of who he believed and what he believed. And so in chapter 4, Paul's primary purpose really is to use Abraham, the progenitor of the the Jewish race, as a concrete example of one who is justified by faith, not by works. And if God acted in grace toward Abraham, if Abraham was actually justified by faith, then Paul's point is established. If Abraham had been justified by his good works, well, Paul's point would not stand. The gospel would not stand. And therefore, Abraham is critically important in his explanation, his detailed explanation of the gospel, which is what the, the, the letter to the Romans is all about. So he begins his argument using Abraham as proof of justification by faith with a contrast. So if you're throwing in your insert that I gave you, you might want to put these two words in. A contrast between works and faith with respect to justification. That's what he's doing in chapter 4 verses 1 through 5. He's drawing this contrast between the works method principle and the Faith method principle. And begins the section with a question, doesn't he? Whether that's the Jewish straw man again asking the question, quite likely, or whether it's Paul just throwing in a question for them to consider, the point is the same. What then shall we say was gained? Some translations have. Found That might be a better translation, but it really means the same thing. Was gained or found by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh. Let me point out that the words according to the flesh may be taken with our forefather, which would stress that the Jews were physical descendants of, of Abraham and that Paul was including himself in that. It could be that, or it could be taken with the, the verb, was gained or found, which would be focusing on whether or not Abraham had been considered righteous before God according to the works of his flesh. What did Abraham find, you know, to be the case when he tried to be justified before God by what he did? Now, either one is possible Grammatically, but it seems to me that the latter is more likely because of the context. And so, in this case, the word "flesh" here doesn't refer to his physical descendancy, but rather refers to human activity or works. What did he find according to his his attempts to do good? And so, Paul is asking what Abraham found pertaining to good works, or keeping the law, or being obedient to God. And, and the Jews held that justification must come by works of the law. That's how you got a, a right relationship with God. And so Paul asked, what would Abraham have found concerning the matter of justification by works? Why would he ask that? Because, that, again, Abraham was the most revered. He was the progenitor of the Jewish race. It's important that he addressed this. Paul anticipates what the Jew would be thinking. He knew that the Jews believed that Abraham was the perfect example of one who was justified by works. The, the Jews saw Abraham as an outstanding standing person who had kept the commandments of the law even before the law was given now let me share a couple quotes with you that represents that view of the jewish people one is this we find that abraham our father had performed the whole law before it was given abraham was perfect in all his deeds with the lord In the Apocryphal book, the Prayer of Manasseh, it says this, Therefore thou, O Lord, God of the righteous, thou hast not appointed repentance for the righteous, for Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, who did not sin against thee. That's how they viewed Abraham and obviously Isaac and Jacob as well. The rabbis taught that Abraham did not sin and was righteous by virtue of his good works. And they also believed that he had an overabundance of this righteous virtue that was then available and passed down to his descendants, Isaac, and Jacob, and so on. Now, this is not unlike how many professing Christians think of their grandparents or their parents. They think of them as being such godly people that surely their godliness is kind of automatically passed down to their children and to their grandchildren. Well, of course, that wasn't true about Abraham and his good works, it could not provide merit to his descendants, nor is it true that the the faith of uh, grandparents and parents can be passed down to their descendants and merit a right relationship with God. But the truth is, a lot of people kind of think that way. Well, Of course I'm a Christian. My grandparents were Christians, and my parents were Christians, and I don't know, my great-great-great-grandparents were Christians, and, you know, I'm a Christian. Of course it's been passed down to me. And they won't talk about faith. They'll talk about religion. They'll talk about mm, good people, about good works, about doing what's right as that was passed down to them. It simply, however, does not work that way. Justification by faith is an individual thing. Each person is either right with God or not right with God. Each person has to make that decision before God. Next, Paul puts forth a hypothesis or a supposition. He says that if Abraham was, in fact, justified by works, as the Jews thought, uh, he would have something to boast about, right? You look at it again. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. Exactly what he says. Now, Paul is not saying that Abraham actually was Justified by his works, only that if works could bring justification, then Abraham would have had something to boast about because he was a good guy, because he did obey God. Because, you know, when God said to him, Hey, leave Ur the Chaldees and go where I'm going to send you, he did. And when God said, Hey, take your son, your only son, up onto the mountain and sacrifice him, he did. He, you know, obeyed God. He did good. He was a godly man. But he could not be justified before God because of that, and that's in fact what Paul says, that just, this justification by works would not be before God. Hmm. So there is a sense in, in which a person may be justified in the sight of other people based on their works, but this is never the case with God. That's, I mean, that's just the fact. This is the common faulty thinking of so many people that what is really important is being justified in the eyes of other people and jesus actually spoke about this in this way john 5 verse 44 how can you believe in? he means how can you believe in me when you receive glory from one another and not seek the glory that comes from the only god he said, you're all about seeking the praise and honor and glory of other religious people and you're paying no attention to how God views you. And that's the way religious people are today as well. There's, there are many uh, who are concerned about being recognized and praised by others for their godliness And yet they're not concerned with whether or not they've been reconciled to God by faith in Jesus Christ. It's all about how others view them. But the way in which Paul proves that Abraham did not receive his righteous standing before God by works is by appealing to the Old Testament Scriptures. Again, he asks the question, for what does the Scripture say? When he says that, he can't be referring to the New Testament. The New Testament wasn't written yet. He's writing it as he writes this. This is part of the New Testament. But he's clearly referring to the Old Testament and to one particular verse, Genesis 15 6, which says nothing about works. It says nothing about obeying the law. It simply states this Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham believed God. And it doesn't say, and did good works. He believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So it is justification by faith before God as opposed to justification by works before men that Paul is concerned with in these first five verses. And that's why he appeals to Genesis 15, 6, where, where there's no mention of works whatsoever. Nothing is said about Abraham having left her Ur- the Chaldees, and moving to Iran, and then after his father died, he leaves part of his family there, and he travels down to the land of Canaan, the land that God had promised to him. Nothing is said, again, about the, the good works that he did, and, uh, you know, giving, uh, giving Lot the choice to have the better land and all of that. Nothing is said about his obedience to God and taking his son up on the mountain. No, it's just that he believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. In fact, the the text which he quotes is a statement that most likely reflects on Abraham from the time that he heard God's call in Ur of the Chaldees to, you know, the time Uh, that he believed God when God gave him the promise I'm going to give you a son and through your descendants all the world will be blessed. In fact, you could just look at it and say it's really a statement that describes his life in relationship to God. Abraham was the believer. That's what he was. He was a believer. And and let me point out that the word counted here, Abraham believed, counted, believe God and was counted to him as righteousness. It's one that we've spoken about in previous weeks, and it's a word that refers to imputation, to the crediting of something to another uh, another's account. We, we talked about a credit card or a bill at, a, at the gas company, and someone pays that for you. They pay the money and it's credited to your account. This is the word to that he was counted. Some translations have, I think, the word reckoned. It was reckoned to him as righteousness, or it was considered as righteousness. The righteousness of God, or a right relationship with God, was imputed or credited to Abraham's account when he believed the promise of God, from the call of God all the way through his life. But the Jew would ask, didn't Abraham's works have something to do with it at all? I mean, it had to play some part in it. And Paul answers that question in verses 4 and 5. Begins by saying, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. Now listen, this again is how so many religious people think. Well, I know that we have to believe, but we also have to have good works, Right? many of you have heard that from people before? Sure. That's the common viewpoint. Of course you have to believe, but faith by itself isn't enough. And it can't say you've got to live in accordance with, you know, the commands of God. So that's what Paul's addressing. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted, credited, reckoned as a gift, but as his due. So Paul shows that works yield wages, right? Works yield wages that must be treated as an obligation by an employer, while faith results in a righteous standing before God simply as a gift. That's what he's emphasizing. I'm sure that every one of us has been employed at some point. Most of us probably still are. And the deal that is made is that you, you go to work for someone and, and it, it's understood. You're going to work a certain number of hours in a week or, or a period of oh, a month or whatever the pay frame may be for who, who you work for. But the deal is made you work for a certain number of hours and at the end of that, your employer pays you for your work. Right? Okay. So it's an obligation. It's an obligation on the employer's part, to pay you what you have earned through your work. And when you receive your payment, whether that's a check or a direct deposit, or however it works with you where you are employed, you don't go to your employer and say, Oh, thank you, thank you, thank you so much for the gift that you gave me. Not one of us has done that. Why? Because we know that we work for it. Right? It's earned. It's earned. No. You 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 work for it. You deserve it. This is a simple principle that's easy to understand. I mean, this is not difficult. You know, if you work, then it's an obligation that you be paid. But he adds to that. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, His faith is counted, credited, reckoned, considered as righteousness. So there is a very, very important principle that stands out here regarding God. God can never be put in a position where he owes you anything. You cannot put God in a position that he owes you. It's not unlike what Paul says in Romans 11.35 where he says, or oh, who is given to him that it might be repaid? <laughs> no one's given to God. That God then has to repay you for what you've given him. That, that was a rhetorical question that indicates that no one ever gives to God and puts him in position of being a debtor to us. It's people who are always indebted to God. God is independent of his creation and his creatures. And his creatures, and his creation are totally, completely dependent upon the creator. So Paul then emphasizes the extent to which the grace of God reaches in his statement that God justifies the ungodly. Did you get that? Did you pick that up? Not to the one who works, but to the one who believes in the God who justifies the ungodly. So not only does God justify a person apart from works, it's not based on good deeds, it's not based on obedience, it's apart from that, it's just based on believing. So not only does God justify a person apart from works, but he does so in spite of what the person truly deserves. He's ungodly. She's ungodly. And yet God declares the ungodly righteous. Think back to Romans 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is being revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And here is saying, but God justifies the ungodly. Wow! Blow your mind. Blow your mind that God does this. So Paul rules out works by showing that righteousness is not to the one who works or does his best to be good, but to the one who does not work and is not good, but simply believes. Now that is not to say that works aren't important after we are justified, after we have placed our faith in Christ. They are, and many scriptures point that out. This is just dealing with the subject of how do you become right with God? It's apart from works, it's by faith. Next, Paul indicates that justification includes the count, the the crediting or the reckoning of righteousness and the non-crediting or reckoning of sin. That's verses four, uh, verses six through eight. Justification includes the crediting of righteousness and the non-crediting of sin. In these verses, Paul interjects another example, David. Now, the whole chapter is about Abraham. David is just inserted to say, here's another example in agreement with what I'm telling you about Abraham. But also... He takes it a little bit further with what he says about David. And the appeal to David and the quotation that comes out of Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2, deals equally well with the, with the fact that justification is by faith and not by works. His point in referring to David is that a right relationship with God was not only not based on works, but it was in spite of his sins. Did you get that it's not based on works, but it's in spite of his sins David's concept of his right standing before God was not based on the works that he had done and he had done many good works as king right he was the best king of Israel he, he was one who was, you know had the heart of God right God said I have chosen a man who has my heart and he had his, God's heart but he blew it at times too didn't he And that's what he's talking about here. God was not, he was not right with God based on what he had done for God, but because God had graciously forgiven his sins. How beautiful are these words that he brings out of the Old Testament and puts in the new? Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count, reckon, credit, consider his sin. Amen. You know, the significance of this word count, which is talking about imputation, is, is seen in the fact that it's found 11 times in chapter 4. 11 times in chapter 4. Verse 3, 4, 5, 6, 8, 9, 10, 11, and 22, 23, and twenty-four. Eleven times in this chapter. Imputation, by the way, is a forensic term. What does that mean? Well, it refers to the act of God as a judge placing on our account the righteousness of Christ. We've mentioned that over the last couple of weeks in particular rather than our record showing our sin what does it show the righteousness of christ we've noted that this imputation of the righteousness of christ is a result of faith and not works you're not getting what you deserve you are actually getting what you don't deserve that's grace that's the gift of god and we've talked about the fact that our faith is not some meritorious work that makes us deserving of a right relationship with God either. It comes from God. Our faith is simply the channel that allows the righteousness of God to be placed on our account. And faith is counted as, as righteousness. Why? Because it pleases God to do it that way. <laughs> Just like it said in Isaiah 53, that it pleased the father to crush the son. Why did he do that? So that his righteousness could be credited to our account. Yes, praise the Lord. The beauty of this quote, then, from David is seen in both what he says, in those first two verses out of Psalm 32, and and the timing of when he says it. In Psalm 32, David is speaking of the blessedness of being forgiven. How blessed are those whose sins are forgiven, whose sins are covered. It is significant, however, to understand that he's referring to his sin of adultery with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband and his sin against the nation by hiding all of that as well. And in verses 3 and 4 in Psalm 32, he speaks of how miserable he was before he confessed his sin to God. This is the way it reads, for when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. That's quite a metaphorical picture of the effects of sin on our life, and I think we could all understand that. When we knew we were sinning against God and other people, it, the guilt just begins to weigh in on us. We lose our energy. We lose the ability to sleep. We, we sometimes get sick. You know, it just, it just is heavy on us. So David knew the guilt of sin, but he also knew the blessedness of forgiveness he says in verse 5, I acknowledge my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. And that's why Paul includes the quote that he does from the first two verses of Psalm 32. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not reckon, count, con- credit, or consider his sin. So what is Paul wanting people to understand? It's this, that justification by faith involves not only the imputation of the righteousness of Christ to our account, but the removal of our sinful account and that is put on Christ. That's imputation. That is forgiveness that comes our way. Next, justification is by faith in verses 9 through 12. Justification is by faith, not by observing religious ordinances. Not by religious ordinances. I mean, you might want to put in the word ritual, but it's really, I want to talk to you about ordinances. And Paul shifts to this, another aspect of Abraham's life in relation to him being right with God, and he he defines the relationship of circumcision with Abraham's faith. The Jews believe that Abraham's circumcision, his circumcision, had something to do with the amount of righteousness that he had before God, as well as what could then be passed down to his descendants. And Paul's going to prove that, that this couldn't be the case. And the connection between Abraham and David is preserved. Did you notice this in, in uh, verse 9? He refers to the blessing. The blessing. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? This blessing of being forgiven was mentioned by David, but it relates to the life of Abraham as well. Was this blessing of forgiveness only for the circumcised, not for the uncircumcised? Was it only for the Jews and not for the Gentiles? Well, the Jews believed that that very fact—that this blessedness was restricted to the Jews. Forgiveness is only for the Jews, not for the Gentiles. They would pray imprecatory prayers, saying, "God, pour your wrath out on the uncircumcised." And the Jews believed that. And therefore, Paul uses Abraham as an example to prove that wasn't the case. And once again, do you that he refers to Genesis 15, 6, in, in verses 9 through 12. For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. And then he asks another question. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he was circumcised? So Paul's going to point out that Abraham was counted as righteous before God, before he was circumcised. That's his point. As already noted, Abraham was stated as being righteous in Genesis 15, 6. But when was he circumcised? That's the question. So let's just do a quick you know, review of Abraham's life in Genesis. Very brief. Um, in in, in uh, chapter 12, and verse 4, we read that Abram was 75 years old when he departed Haran. He was 75 years old when he left northern Syria and went to the land that God had promised to him. Then in 1616 16 of Genesis, we read that Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. And this was some period of time after God had given the promise to Abram that he and Sarah would have a son. So now he's 86 initially 75 now he's 86 years old and then we read in 1724 of genesis that abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin so what's paul's point well the point is pretty simple to to see the timing of abraham's circumcision shows that it had absolutely nothing to do with his right relationship with god that came by him believing, not by being circumcised. When the chronology of these chapters are noted, it is clear that Abraham was actually uh, counted as righteous at, at least at least 14 years before he was circumcised. This evidence shows that circumcision and religious ordinance or ritual plays no part. In being justified, being declared righteous by God, well, how does this how does this relate to people today? And The point that Paul is making is not simply related to circumcision. His point is that religious ordinances have nothing to do with justification, since circumcision is not a religious ordinance followed by the church as it was by the Jewish people and the church is not directly under that requirement of circumcision that God gave in the Abrahamic covenant. How does this then relate to us? I'm so glad that you asked that question. That's an important question to ask and you did it. I'm so glad. Most theologians will agree that there are two ordinances that the church adheres to. Baptism and the Lord's Supper or communion. Baptism and the Lord's Supper, and I think that it's important for us to understand the distinction between a couple of words: the word ordinance and the word sacrament. Now, maybe you grew up hearing that baptism and the Lord's Supper are the two sacraments of the church. Such is at least a misunderstanding. At at worst, it's a false teaching. Want to make that clear? There is a significant difference between these two words. The word sacrament refers to the conveying of efficacious grace to the person partaking of the sacrament. Did you get that? Sacrament means the conveying of grace to the person participating in the sacrament. The Roman Catholic Council of Trent put it this way. A sacrament is something presented to the senses, which has the power by divine institution not only of signifying, but also of efficiently conveying grace. And that was the Roman Catholic Church, but the truth is many Protestant churches think of it that way, and they use the term sacrament to describe the Lord's Supper and baptism as though grace is being conveyed when we participate in it. The word ordinance, however, does not imply the conveying of grace in any way. An ordinance can be described as an outward right or a command prescribed by Christ to be performed by the church. Such a definition would reduce the number of ordinances in the church to two, the the Lord's Supper, and to baptism. And if we're understanding Paul's point correctly, he's saying that ordinances, Lord's Supper, baptism, have nothing to do with being justified before God. If that's the case, what is the significance of uh, participating in these two ordinances, be it or let's say three ordinances, whether it's circumcision, or the Lord's Supper, or baptism. What's the significance? Well, the, Paul answers that in verse 11. He, he, explains the sign, he explains that the sign of circumcision was given to Abraham as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So circumcision to be understood as an outward picture, an outward picture of an inward reality, even in Abraham's life, an outward picture of an inward reality. God's purpose in having worked it this way is then stated so that Abraham could be the father of all who believe without being circumcised. God did it that way with Abraham and circumcision, so that Abraham could be our father, even if we're not circumcised, and most Gentiles were not. God wanted to make it very clear that that all people could be justified, whether they were circumcised or uncircumcised, whether they were Jews or they were Gentiles. However, this is not just Paul's interpretation of what happened. This is directly stated by God in Genesis 17, 11, After God had told Abraham about the covenant he was making with him, this is what he said. You shall be circumcised in your flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a sign, a sign of the covenant between me and you. So God himself declared, that a religious ordinance was only a sign or a picture of what he was doing in Abraham's life and then in anyone else's life who follow Abraham's example. Well, this is the same with with baptism and the Lord's Supper for the Christian church. When we remember the Lord as we do every week, as we did earlier today, and we take the bread and the cup, we're not receiving it efficacious grace grace is not being conveyed to us instead it is a picture in outward form of what we know god did through the sacrifice of his son through his death burial and resurrection on our behalf it is a picture of what's already a reality in our lives because of what we believed And when we are baptized in obedience to Christ's command, we are not receiving efficacious grace. It's not conveyed to us when we come out of the water. But we are showing in an outward manner what has already occurred in our lives by faith in Jesus, that we were immersed by faith into the body of Christ. The fact that Abraham was declared righteous by God before he was circumcised is not without meaning then. For Paul states that we are all children of Abraham because we follow in his footsteps of faith. Now, not all like everyone, but anyone who believes the gospel. He says in verse 11 that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised. And then verse 12, who also walk in the footsteps of the faith. Not the good works the faith of our father Abraham before he was circumcised. So what the scriptures say about Abraham being counted as righteous before God because of his faith is to be understood as God making it clear that justification or being declared righteous in God's eyes has nothing to do with religious ordinance, whether it's circumcision, Lord's Supper, or baptism, or any other ordinance. And then in the last four, verses 13 and 16, we see that justification is by faith, not by keeping the law. It's by faith, not by keeping the law. So Paul demonstrates that the promise Abraham received was by faith, not, not by keeping the law. And the inheritance, of course, that he's referring to in these verses is the land that was promised to Abraham and his descendants And the the, the promise made to Abraham that he would be the heir of the world refers to the number of descendants that would come from him and how the nations would all come to the nation of Israel and worship the Lord as they did. Well, how did Abraham receive that promise? Well, Paul says it wasn't through law. It wasn't through works, but it was through the righteousness of that comes by faith, the righteousness of faith, righteousness that comes through faith. So the Jews look forward to being recipients of the promise as well. They did. They believed that they would be heirs of the world in the sense that God would send his Messiah, and the Messiah would come and establish the Jewish nation as the chief among all the nations in the world. And and the rabbis believed that the promise was made to Abraham on the basis of him fulfilling the law, even though... The law was given 430 years after Abraham. So I think Paul's thinking of law here in a broader context than the Mosaic law. I mean, I, I think what he's really speaking of is the principle of law, doing good, being good, etc. The principle of law as opposed to the principle of faith. And he goes on in the next verses to demonstrate why Abraham or anyone could not be justified by the principle of law. He shows that faith and law are incompatible. We've talked about that. It's like oil and water. You can't mix them. And his point is that if the inheritance of the promise comes to, this is how he puts it, the adherence of the law, right? The adherence meaning the Jews, Jews who Believed in the law and kept the law. If it came to the adherence of the law, he says, then faith is null. What does null mean? None. Zip. Right? And the promise, he says, is void. Faith is null and the promise is void. If the promise is hedged about with all kinds of stipulations, you know, about obedience to the law, it loses its value because the promise was based on God's grace. Grace not upon good works, and the reason the promise would be void, Paul then states. He says, the law brings wrath, right? The law, he says, brings wrath. So if the promise was conditioned upon keeping the law, uh, the, the human inability to keep the law would have brought disobedience, And that disobedience would bring about the wrath of God. It would be an operation on that person because the wrath of God is being revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth. And we're all under that guilt. We've seen that throughout our study of Romans to this point. So this would have resulted in a forfeiture of what was promised. If you didn't keep the law and it was based upon the law, if the promise was based on the law, you couldn't keep the law, you didn't keep the law, then the promise is forfeited. You don't get what was promised. God's wrath would be pitted against God's grace at that point. So Paul adds this, for the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. So we come once again to the true function of the law, don't we? The law was never intended to save anyone it was intended to prove that you needed salvation, that you needed a savior. Hodges sees this as a working out of this in two ways. One, our imperfect obedience to the law brings the law's curse on us. And then secondly, the law actually excites and exasperates the evil passions of our heart. That's what Paul says in Romans 7. I wouldn't have known what it was to covet if the law had said, not said, you shall not covet. I was like, I would have been oblivious to it. But the law says, you shall not covet it. That stimulated coveting within me. The law doesn't produce sin, but it acts against the sin that is already indwelling in our heart, and it stimulates it in that way. It's like me putting a sign up. I paint the doors to the entry into the building. And I put a sign up on the window. Wet paint. Do not touch. This is what everyone will do. <laughs> the command excites. i got to touch it now. i got to touch it. Keep off the grass. Where's everyone picking it? Picnicking. On the grass. Because I don't want to do what the law tells me to do. I'm stimulated to disobey it. And that's What he's talking about, the law has its place in in the way God brings salvation to people, but it's not in the provisions of means where we somehow become virtuous and we receive salvation as a a a wage that is earned. No, rather, the law shows up our inadequacies and it makes us see our need of a savior, and 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 when Paul. He says that, he said, uh, where well, there is no law, there is no transgression. What is, what is that talking about? Well, first of all, transgression is the right word for overstepping the line and, and thus for breaking a clearly defined commandment, right? You transgress, you step over the line. But if there is no transgression, hey, there's no need of salvation. But all have sinned and falls short of the glory of God. So we need salvation because we've all transgressed. Law shows us where we stand, but it doesn't save us. It tells us we need a Savior. So if the promise was conditioned upon the law and the people transgress the law, then there would be no promise received, right? But he ends this section with, it depends on faith. It depends on faith. It depends on faith. Now, he doesn't say that three times, but I wanted to. Why? In order that the promise may rest on grace, it is guaranteed to all of his offspring. If justification is based on the law, (laughs) well, it depends on how well you keep it. And you don't keep it very well. And so the promise is uncertain, (laughs) to say the least. It's uncertain. You don't get it. But since grace and faith go together, and since the promise is by grace, the promise can be received only by faith. And once it's received, you get the guarantee of the whole deal. You're forgiven at that moment, and you're given the promise of the inheritance and glory alongside your Savior. For this reason, Paul says, the promise is guaranteed to everyone who is a spiritual descendant of Abraham, whether they had the law or they didn't. So Father's Day, another father that we're talking about. Abraham is the father of all who believe. Not in physical descendancy, but in spiritual descendancy. Because we follow his example of believing God and not working to earn something from God. Okay, so we're all traveling down the highway of life, right? Back to that. Some people see the house and they just go by it. They don't care. Others will see the house and they stop and they try to enter. And they 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 pull out a key. And it may be the key of good works. But they find that it doesn't unlock the door. Others may try the key of religious ordinance. But it too doesn't unlock the door. And others may try the, the key of law works, obeying the law, thinking surely that will unlock the door, but it won't. There's only one key that can unlock the door and only when people, this is important, only when people will throw those other keys away. because it's not a two key door lock. You don't need two keys. You just need the one key. You've got to throw those other ones away. Abandon them. And you take out the key of faith and it unlocks the door and you're welcomed into the house of salvation. Faith is the only way into the promise of salvation that God gives. The forgiveness of sins. How to be right with God. It comes to us by faith. By faith. By faith. So one final thing. From this passage, a kind of a a, a blessing takeaway. I, I want you to notice that in verses six through nine, where he's talking about David, the, the example of David, the, the, and then also of Abraham. The text refers to the blessing of being forgiven, right? The blessing of being forgiven, and this is what is true for everyone who has been justified by faith in Jesus. Forgiveness does not come as a result of good works or religious ordinance or keeping the law. Only those who respond to God's grace and place their faith in Jesus experience the blessing of having their sins forgiven and being in a right relationship with God. Yeah, praise the Lord. And so if you have been forgiven, hey, give praise. Give thanks, give glory to God the Father who loved us so much that he gave his one and only Son to become our Savior. And if, you, if you've been trusting in some other key to get you into the door, throw it away. There's only one key that will get you in. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, for this passage of scripture thank you for the example of Abraham thank you for Paul who recorded this and what it means to us I mean I think it was written so long ago and of course he was trying to impact the Jewish people in particular but it so impacts us because it tells us what we need to avoid as well and what we need to believe as well and what belief in the lord jesus christ will bring to us so thank you we praise you we give you thanks thank you too for the food that we're going to eat and the fellowship around the the tables that we'll enjoy may that time bring you glory as well Pray all this in christ's great name amen